In May 1992, a broadcast journalist gave birth on TV. Come on, Murphy. You've got to focus. Take a deep breath and push. It was the end of a season-long storyline on the sitcom Murphy Brown. I better warn you up front. I'm not going to be like other mothers. Murphy's pregnancy was unexpected. She wasn't married. And in the season finale, she had a baby boy. The episode ended with Murphy holding her son for the first time, telling him to adjust his expectations. Because she was a career woman. I don't cook or sew or make stuffed animals talk in funny voices. The day after that episode aired, Murphy Brown was thrust into a political debate. President George H.W. Bush was in the midst of a re-election fight, and the California Republican primary was around the corner. So Vice President Dan Quayle flew out to San Francisco to give a speech. Answers to our problems won't be easy, my friends. A lot of conservative Republicans were disappointed with Bush's first term. So the vice president made a direct appeal to the Republican right with family values. We can start by dismantling a welfare system that encourages dependency and subsidizes broken families. Quayle went after single moms and absent dads. Bearing babies irresponsibly is simply wrong. Failing to support children, one as father, is wrong. It was a familiar argument in conservative circles, and the racist dog whistles were pretty clear. But then the vice president's speech took an unexpected turn. It doesn't help matters when primetime TV has Murphy Brown, a character who supposedly epitomizes today's intelligent, highly paid professional woman, mocking the importance of fathers by bearing a child alone and calling it just another lifestyle choice. So the nation's vice president took stock of what he saw as some of America's biggest problems and pointed the finger at a fictional newswoman. Murphy Brown wasn't the first single mom on TV. She wasn't the first pregnant character to wrestle with whether to have a baby. Other shows tackled more controversial issues like abortion decades earlier. So what was going on in 1992 that made Murphy Brown such a hot-button issue? From the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Primetime, a show about the power of television and how it affects and reflects our culture. I'm your host, Todd Vanderwerf. This season, The President is on TV, how American presidents have used TV to further their political ambitions and how TV has used the presidency in turn. Today on the show, Murphy Brown versus Dan Quayle. We'll look back at the feud between a sitcom character and a real politician, and find out what that fight tells us about our culture in 1992 and today. Murphy Brown premiered in the fall of 1988. The show centered around the title character played by Candace Bergen. She was a TV journalist at a fictional news show called FYI, where she often interviewed real politicians. We even had members of Congress and the Senate sending us headshots because everybody wanted to be on the show. 
you know, Arlen Specter and Orrin Hatch. That's Diane English, the creator of Murphy Brown. Murphy was a, a very independent woman. She had been married once, but only for five days. She was a very hard-charging journalist who was somebody we like to call Mike Wallace in a dress. She was a woman functioning in a man's world. I think I'm beginning to see the real issue here. Why don't you guys just pull down your pants, I'll get a ruler, and we'll settle this once and for all. You saw her being a boss. That's Joy Press, the author of the recent book, Stealing the Show, How Women Are Revolutionizing Television. Not only did you see her being a boss, but there was a running joke about what a mean boss she was. I mean, she would have a new assistant every week because, you know, she always found them too incompetent. This isn't working out. I have certain needs. Someone who files alphabetically. Someone who makes a cup of coffee without setting off the smoke alarm. Someone who can find his way back from the men's room without having to stop at the lobby directory. You know, I didn't want to say anything, but... This parade of secretaries you've gone through, it's always their fault. It's never you. It's kind of empowerment feminism. You know, we don't need to be feminized or talked down to. We can, we can fill the C-suite and do it just as well as a man. By the late 1980s, the feminism Murphy Brown personified had accomplished a lot. More than half of American women worked outside the home. Nearly half of all college students were women. And by the end of the decade, millions of women had moved into professional and managerial positions. But with all of that success came a backlash. In most American households, it used to be that mom stayed home and cared for the kids while dad was at work. But nowadays, in most households, both parents work and young children are dropped off at daycare centers. Are these changing times changing the rules for a child's development? As women gained economic power, their personal lives changed. Divorce rates spiked. Some women never married. Those who did tended to marry later and had kids later. A lot of the news magazines had these features about, uh, you know, how women over 40 had no chance of getting married and their biological clocks were ticking. America was going through a lot of social change. And at the same time, crime rates skyrocketed. Some people, like the nation's vice president, blamed single and working moms. And there was a real sense of fear that feminism had, had taken us as a culture down the wrong path. And so there was this weird current of anxiety about women in the workplace. That was very much, I think, part of the landscape in pop culture that Murphy Brown came into. The workplace was changing. Families were changing. And Murphy Brown captured all of that on television. In the third season finale, Murphy Brown got pregnant. She spent a lot of time weighing her options, wondering if she could fit a baby into her busy career-driven life. Diane English worried that Murphy Brown having a baby might alienate the show's single women viewers. She was their standard bearer, the single woman, so now are we going to disappoint them by making her a mom? But English didn't think the storyline would start a political debate. It didn't seem to me to be particularly uh, incendiary to make her a single mom. 
And I was asked by a member of the press, are you prepared for all the blowback you're going to get? And I said, what are you talking about? It's 1992. (laughs) What kind of blowback? And then the next thing I know, the vice president, Dan Quayle, is using it as a political football and blaming Murphy Brown for the fall of Western civilization. It became part of the wider culture war. These battles over what it means to be an American. Professor Andrew Hartman is the author of A War for the Soul of America, A History of the Culture Wars. I take it back to the 1960s when the broad array of social movements from civil rights to black power to feminism to gay liberation changed the framework for how many millions of Americans thought about what it meant to be an American. But some Americans had been happy with the way things were. As the culture sort of loosened up and embraced more and more people, conservative, religious, a much more traditional view of America reacted to that. The religious right became a growing force in American politics. By the late 1980s, it had a lot of power in the Republican Party. And conservatives used their influence to pull moderate Republicans to the right on social issues. This all came to a head in the 1992 election. During the Republican presidential primary, President George H.W. Bush faced a conservative challenge from Patrick Buchanan, a conservative Catholic who started out as a Nixon speechwriter and became a leading culture warrior. Our popular culture of books, movies, and films is as polluted as Lake Erie once was. The welfare state has bred a generation of children and youth with no fathers, no faith, and no dreams other than the lure of the streets. To win re-election, Bush administration officials thought they needed to tack to the right, to signal to religious conservatives that they were on their side. So Vice President Dan Quayle seized an opportunity. It doesn't help matters when primetime TV has Murphy Brown. Quayle's remarks on Murphy Brown became huge news. The New York Times ran a front-page photo of Candace Bergen in character, cradling her infant son, and asked, is Murphy Brown really a tramp? The day after Quayle's speech, President Bush gave a press conference with the Canadian Prime Minister to talk about trade relations. But the press wouldn't stop asking him about Murphy Brown and single moms. All right, this is the last Murphy Brown question. Maybe. Well, it's the last Murphy Brown answer, put it that way. (laughs) Candace Bergen won an Emmy for her role the following August. A journalist asked her if the upcoming season premiere would address the controversy with Dan Quayle. You know, we don't want to dedicate that much airtime to the vice president. Certainly he has to be acknowledged, but we have a baby to deal with. You know how time-consuming they are. It was a full-on culture war. Quayle versus Brown, conservative Christians versus the liberal Hollywood elite... But here's the thing. With all the headlines and Emmy speeches and TV episodes devoted to Quayle's few lines on Murphy Brown, a lot of Americans forgot about the rest of Quayle's speech and the context in which it was given. Now I'm guilty. I started crying. I mean, that hurt because it was like the videotape was self-explanatory. More on that after the break. Welcome back to Primetime. Dan Quayle's infamous Murphy Brown comments were just a couple of lines in a much longer speech, given a few weeks after days of unrest in Los Angeles. 
a jury had acquitted four LAPD officers accused of assaulting Rodney King. For the city of Los Angeles, a third day of tension and violence. As night approaches, police and National Guard units are out in force. The unrest left 55 people dead and thousands wounded. Some blamed decades of racist practices by the LAPD. Quayle, as we heard, blamed single-parent households and a breakdown in family values. Professor Andrew Hartman again. And so he's saying, here we have these riots, and if these young men had fathers who could teach them that doing X, Y, and Z was wrong, maybe we wouldn't have had these riots. So in Quayle's mind, Murphy Brown was setting a bad example for the black families in south-central Los Angeles. But it's unlikely many of those families actually watched Murphy Brown. Among black households, the sitcom didn't even crack the top 50 most-watched shows. But Quayle didn't seem to care too much about pop culture. He'd never even watched Murphy Brown. The point was to reach the conservatives in the Republican Party. The Republican Party is running against two types of Americans. One are urban black Americans who are ruining our cities. The other are the white liberals who are coddling them. These are not groups of people that the Republican Party needs to win, but they are groups of people that are seen as sort of the enemies of all that is good in the United States. In other words, Quayle wasn't trying to find solutions for single moms or working-class Black families. He was trying to demonize those families and liberal elites in one fell swoop to play to his base. So did it work? Culture critic Joy Press. Certainly, it worked in terms of being an issue that the religious right at the time could rally behind. There were people at rallies holding up signs, anti-Murphy Brown, pro-Dan Quayle signs. So certainly, it worked with the base. But it also didn't hurt the show. The season Quayle attacked won a bunch of awards. And the following season, Murphy Brown struck back. Today in a speech focusing on the American family, Vice President Dan Quayle had some strong comments on what he termed a poverty of values, citing... In this episode, Murphy Brown sees a fictional news report about the vice president, and she offers a rebuttal on her news program, FYI. Perhaps it's time for the vice president to expand his definition and recognize that whether by choice or circumstance, families come in all shapes and sizes, and ultimately... What really defines a family is commitment, caring, and love. 70 million people watched that episode. The highest ratings for any TV show in nearly two years. And then, after all that, President George H.W. Bush lost the 1992 election to Bill Clinton. I just called uh, Governor Clinton over in Little Rock and offered my congratulations. He did run a strong campaign. President Bush's attempt to capture the conservative Republican vote didn't pay off at the polls. Murphy Brown wrapped in May 1998, and as creator Diane English noticed just a few short years later. On Friends, when the character of Rachel, played by Jennifer Aniston, had a baby without being married, nobody blinked an eye. If you take the long view, liberal values won the day in this particular culture war. And that's often the case. The left often wins in the long run. 
in terms of how the culture actually shifts and changes and how people accommodate the cultural changes, gay marriage would be a classic example. Public opinion on gay marriage has shifted dramatically in the last 10 years. And exposure to LGBT characters in pop culture may have helped that happen. But even as the country moves to the left on some issues, culture wars are still with us, especially with respect to race politicians tend to use new terminology to disguise very old arguments. Welfare reform, I see it, and I've talked to people. I know people, they work three jobs, and they live next to somebody who doesn't work at all. And the person who's not working at all and has no intention of working at all is making more money and doing better than the person that's working his and her ass off. And it's not- when Murphy Brown returned for a revival season in late 2018, the show tried to repeat its scrape with Dan Quayle, but with Donald Trump. Like in this scene, where Murphy's now-grown son is teaching her how to tweet. Hello, Twitter people. Here's a fun fact. I once went on a date with Donald Trump. He made us split the check. The revival was funny, but it didn't really make a splash. We're in a new era now, one with hundreds of TV shows. It's really hard to draw attention to just one of them. So Trump may have revived the culture wars of the 1990s, but our entertainment landscape has changed dramatically. These days, if Republicans or Democrats disagree with the politics of a network sitcom, they'll just change the channel. Next up on Primetime, we take a look at two presidents who knew how to connect with audiences on the small screen. One who actually got his start on the big screen. Randy! Where's the rest of me? And one who's been called the communicator-in-chief. The great communicators, Reagan and Obama. How sweet the sound. Next time on Primetime. That same like Primetime is produced by Bridget Armstrong. We're edited by Isaac Kestenbaum. Mixing and scoring by Gautam Shrikishan. Thanks to Rebel Talk Studios and our engineer, Ernesto Hurtado. Our researcher is Michelle Delgado. Our social media manager is Lexi Shapittle. Nishat Kurwa is the executive producer of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Jillian Weinberger is the senior producer of audio at Vox. Theme music by Brandon McFarland. Special thanks to Eleanor Barkhorn, Liz Nelson, Allison Rocky, and Jen Trollia. I'm your host, Todd Vanderwerf. Talk to you next week.